so. Let's talk shop. So I'm, I'm going to enjoy a good tasty beer while we do this. I don't know about you. <laughs> I already had a couple, so I'm good. Good. It's actually not a good beer. It's actually a yingling, and I think it's a Florida yingling. So it tastes vaguely like a Spanish well, but it was good. <laughs> Um, so you ready to talk about some architecture? I am. Some ancient Greek architecture, some Parthenon-y? Yeah, it actually came up, some of the terms and stuff that I looked up and studied actually came up at work, so this is actually going to work out well. Oh, somebody mentioned, uh, entice, entice, uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, entablature was mentioned this week. Nice. I knew it was, so... Well, we're going to be doing these chronologically, so the uh, win for this particular building is 447 B.C. to 438 B.C. For those of you not familiar, that's before Christ. Um, I don't know who that would be. And the where will be Athens, the Acropolis, 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 which is uh, Greek for the high city. It's the city up on the hill, uh, which probably at one time was a fortified city. So yay, <laughs> you all know where that is. Um, so for those who don't know, or where to go. So uh, the Parthenon, it's got a weird name, we often confuse it with Pantheon. Um, it actually stands for uh, Place of the Young Maiden. And, and the reason I'm going over this is we'll get into why the building was built, because most buildings aren't built because people want a beautiful building, they want to put something in it, and then perhaps they want it to look beautiful for some other reason, which we'll talk about. So, yeah. place of the young that that name, place of the young mating, refers to one of the two purposes of the building, which was to venerate uh, Athena Polios or Athena of the city. She was the patron saint of Athens, thus Athena Athens. Um. And the other was a tribute to the god, Athena the Young Maiden, uh, the actual goddess herself. Uh, and so the ancients had all kinds of gods. So you had, uh, if you've watched movies about Rome, you might hear somebody yell Jupiter Lapis, which is Jupiter of the Stone, and I forget what that is. But it's a particular role of the god, or, or uh, what have you. So that's, uh, that's a little bit about that. So why the Parthenon? Um, and this is a quote from a guy named John Julius Cooper I found, which is, the Parthenon enjoys a reputation of being the most perfect Doric temple ever built, and he probably doesn't need to um, parentheticize that with the word Doric. Even in antiquity, its architectural refinements were legendary, especially the subtle correspondence between the curvature of the stylobate and the taper, taper of the nanos walls, as well as the intasis of the columns, which David will... You're going to talk about what all that means. Yes. Uh, it's kind of cool, though, because the Parthenon, if you look at, like, the ancient wonders of the world, it's it's on there. And I forget who kind of wrote that. I think it goes back to some Greek historian in ancient times. It's not one that's actually there for its huge size or opulence. It actually is for its kind of architectural refinement. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, if you even think about, like, how... Uh, Vitruvius when he did his 10 books of architecture this was kind of like the first or one of the oldest examples he could look at of kind of high art and high architecture at that time yeah 
Yeah, and uh, high art's an interesting idea, too, that the Greeks kind of emerges with the Greeks. So to understand um, the first couple of buildings we're going to do, which are ancient buildings, we kind of need to understand the, the culture they're built in, which was pretty removed from where we are now, like over 2,400 years away. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, this was built during classic, the classic Greek period, which was over about a 200-year period, which you find most kind of empires have a 200-year span, which is very short. Yeah. <laughs> um, for the Greeks, it was I think they referred to it as a Helena. A lot of this is uh, Wikipedia history, so if it's wrong, go, don't write us. Go to Wikipedia and fix it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Greece, like we think of as a country today, kind of on the western side of the Aegea at the time, Greater Helena was actually um, all the land kind of around the Aegean and the islands in there. And they were these kind of independent city-states that more or less shared a culture. Um, and it would be, that included uh, mainland Greece and mainland Turkey today. Uh, and... The origin of, of the Parthenon is actually kind of in the politics of that period. So in uh, 499 BC, those Eastern Greeks, uh, uh, city-states in Turkey rose up in revolt against the Persian king, and the Persians were a giant empire, which is roughly where Iran is today. Um, and the Greeks were kind of living on this weird edge of the civilized world, which was kind of around the Fertile Crescent. Um, so... They revolted. They were the Western city-states on the other side of the Aegean said, hey, those guys are like us. Let's go over there and mm -hmm. uh, defend them. And that started the Persian Wars. And if you've seen the movie 300, you've seen something equivalent to the history of that war. Um, and, and the Greeks won. And partly how they won is Athens abandoned the city and literally get burned to the ground and went out in their navy and sank it. And they formed afterwards what was called the Delian League, which was a bunch of the city-states agreeing to hold together to um, protect each other from other possible invasions by the Persians or other giant empires. Uh, but Athens was kind of the first among equals there. And as such, Athens began to kind of use the resources of the League for their own uh, purposes and to further their own, their own political ends. Um, so there's a bit of hubris building up here, and I think we see that throughout history where um, kind of at your greatest moment of hubris you will build some giant monument to yourself whether it's a corporation or a company and then a few short years later you're destroyed so, <laughs> spoiler alert so at in the, the delian league is, is named that after the island that the league was centered on and where the or the treasure that all these city-states would contribute to their defense was was put uh, put there. Um, that'll come into play, but this creation of the Delian League and then Athens' dominance of it kind of corresponds to the dawning of the of Athens' uh, golden age. You know, kind of a flowering of poetry, philosophy, science, and art. Um, it's like a forty-year period, actually, where basically the fundamentals of of Western culture were put in, and the foundation of that was come up, and it. The Delian League during that period shifts kind of from this uh, uh, coalition into an Athenian empire. 
Uh, I think the the big thing, and this kind of plays into why the Parthenon's important, why Greek art's so important, is the during the Golden Age, the idea of the individual kind of emerges. Um, you know, a lot of Greek architecture uh, and culture is derived from Egyptian gods. A lot of Greek gods are actually very similar to Egyptian gods uh, and so forth. But the Egyptians kind of saw time as a never-ending spiral of life and death. So the pharaoh could be the king simultaneously he could also be his son and his father and a whole bunch of other gods because they're all kind of life is kind of cyclical and eternal uh and all work was kind of created by the pharaoh so a lot of architects study a lot of um we learn a little bit i guess about egyptian architecture but it's pretty style stylized and doesn't really relate much to what we do today yeah i could see that So the Greeks um, kind of credited and venerated not a god as the focal point of their society, but individuals who achieved great things. Uh, additionally, the Greeks thought of time as being linear. They have different uh, myths about continuing uh, de-evolution from perfection, which goes into some of the design of the Parthenon. Um, but they also believe in being able to observe the world as individuals and and understand it and improve themselves through contemplation so these are kind of sets up kind of three important ideas for the greeks which i think come down to us today and one is that individuals make things the second is that time is synonymous with progression that we're moving towards something temp temporally and the other is that man can understand the world that we can have a humanistic central world view and that'll come back in the renaissance it, one of the things about the Parthenon is we'll see there are actually names associated with it of individuals as opposed to Greek architecture or other architecture, as I was saying. And that's kind of an important thing that the Greeks brought to the table and how we understand art in the modern world is that a lot of collaborative efforts like filmmaking or architecture, uh, a whole bunch of people work together and a whole bunch of people make decisions, but we always try to see it as being kind of the product of one genius and one person. Again, that kind of Greek idea of the individual. So this kind of cult of personality develops around artworks, which will carry on throughout the history of, of art going forward. Um, so that's what that, that's kind of the, the culture. So why was the Parthenon built? It was, it was built to serve two purposes. One was it was a, a religious building. I've, I've read some places where it wasn't the temple of of the uh, goddess. There's actually an older one somewhere, but it, it played a part in the pan. Atheanic uh, procession, which will come back up when David talks about the architecture some, um, where they would proceed through the city and it would end at the temple and they would be able to look in and see a giant statue of the goddess in there. And second, it was a treasury. Uh, there were two rooms. The front room was kind of the, where the statue was and the back room was the treasury. Uh, up on top of the hills, a pretty defensible place. Um, and this corresponds to kind of the treasury of the Dillian League being moved to Athens, strangely enough. Uh, but there's also a third purpose, which is probably the most important, is that the building and much of the rest of the new construction on the Acropolis, which when you go there is what you see, is most of that's from that Golden Age period, was a piece of political propaganda. It was a physical expression of the glory and power of Athens. You know, Athens considered itself the greatest city of its age, uh, superior to everybody, smarter than everybody, 
Uh, and the whole point of the Parthenon was to kind of humble the other members of the Dalian League. So you, when you went there, and they said, well, why is all our money here? They said, well, because we're better than you. That's why. So do something about it. <laughs> <laughs> and they would do that. So it served a sort of political purpose. Some of the key players, uh -huh. as we're talking about individuals here so much, um, in this would be uh, Pericles, which actually translates into English as surrounded by glory, which is a fantastic name to have. <laughs> he was a, a political leader in the in Athens who was kind of most responsible for turning the Delian League into the Athenian Empire. And Athens was a democracy, obviously. But as many democracies are, there are people who lead it. He was considered you know, the first citizen of Athens. Uh, sort of the first among equals. So it was his idea to move the treasury to Athens. He used that treasury to promote the arts and sciences and fund the construction of on the Acropolis. It also created a bunch of political jealousies among the other city-states, which eventually, it, through a kind of long build-up, built up to the Peloponnesian War, which is was basically Athens and its ally, allies versus Sparta, who, you know, you're, I guess it's very much an enemy of my enemies, my friends thing. Um, and eventually Athens lost the war and this, this short and brief flowering of, um, of creativity and culture kind of was greatly curtailed, although the Roman Empire would continue in it by, by looking to the Greeks for, for learning. Uh, the other big guy to know would be Phidias, a sculptor, which is kind of important because the Parthenon really is a piece of sculpture in a way that maybe a modern building's not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he was, he was one of the greatest sculptures of ancient Greece, which is, is saying something. Uh, and his work was praised for its ability not only to render realistic representations, but to also communicate higher principles, which I think is kind of another Greek idea that has found its way into modern art and modern world, that physical objects somehow communicate spiritual or intellectual ideas. He uh, designed the statue of Athena that was... Um, in the main hall of the Parthenon, uh, it's unlikely most Greeks went into the chamber, actually, but perhaps a lot of them saw it at the end of the Panathenic um, procession. And seeing this ivory sculpture in torchlight in the shady, smoky realm, it really would have looked like a living god in there watching them, um, kind of unflinching and uh, ever-living. Uh, the other two guys, which are barely kind of known, are Ictinus and Callicrates. I'm sure I'm butchering that pronunciation. They were actually architects. Um, not much is known, remembered about them, but their names are found all over uh, ancient Greece on other important temples. Um, and so they probably shared responsibilities with, uh, with Phidias for designing the Parthenon. He was the you know, sculpture, the idea man, they probably did a lot of making it work and happen and so forth. Uh, so that gets us to what this thing is. That's why it was built. David, you want to talk a little bit about the, you will talk about it. Why am I asking? You said you would. <laughs> yeah, I think you brought up some good points too about, I imagine it was probably a very collaborative environment between the architects and Phidias as they came up with how everything would go together, I could see for a, a building like this that the architects are probably more um, more there for the scale and kind of how the pieces would go together. Yeah. Where Phidias was probably 
in charge of like telling the story and like you talk about him being a great sculptor not only did he do the the statue of athena but he probably did the stories on both the east and the west pediment that talked about the birth of athena and how athena was born and then over on the other pediment um it talked about the competition between Athena and Poseidon and all that was carved into the pediment there. Right. So they're kind of um, creationist myths on the Parthenon telling Athens where they came from. And like Rome has the Romulus and Remus story and um, a lot of cities have founding myths. And so and they, they usually part of that myth is why you're better than everybody else. Right. And I think that this, this building is actually kind of amazing with how, I mean, it, it really is a time of high art and like they wanted it to be this, you know, building that's look at us. We are better than everyone else. So, I mean, they put, or as far as we know, the best minds they could to create the architecture, create the sculpture and put this piece of work together. Yeah. It really is amazing sculpture too. If you see medieval art where, it's different ideas, but the realism just isn't there compared to what these guys, the Greeks were doing. I mean, the most realistic sculptures ever made were done at this period. I mean, the, the sophistication's amazing. Yeah, that and the ability to just, I mean, if you think of the materials that they're working with, too, and, and that age, yeah. and how they're able to just sculpt the human form just in amazing detail is quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have you seen the um, the Elgin marbles? Because Lord Elgin stole stolen from the Greeks, are now at the British Museum. Oh, are they? Yeah, uh, the Greeks were not in full control of their country for a long time, but they're 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 amazingly beautiful sculptures. So, well, I think that we even saw when we studied abroad in Paris, weren't there reliefs and other sculptures that were from Greece that were in like one of the uh, the courtyards of one of the architecture schools in Paris. Yeah, that was a big, um, a big thing for the European powers. I mean, I think like in Germany they have like a whole Greek or Egyptian temple. They just took brick from brick from Egypt when nobody was really looking. <laughs> so the um, the 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 parts of the Parthenon, because Greek architecture was a, it was a traditional kind of architecture, even though we were talking about it in terms of individuals. Um, but the parts are very were very well understood and 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 followed and kind of created a I guess like a lot of religious architecture you know there's a certain form that had to be followed yeah and i think it's kind of interesting how you know the the architects that created this came up with these kind of systems of this post and lentil construction right and then how it was even looked on when Vitruvius did the 10 books about this is the perfect example. And he goes back to the Parthenon as the perfect example of kind of the Doric order, right? Of the and classical orders and how, just how masterful this building was. Right. And post and lentil is basically just what it sounds like. You've got two posts and then between them is a lentil, another piece of wood or stone that spans them. And all Greek architecture was built that way. If you see a arch, it's not, Greek. So, right, and it's actually kind of interesting when you look at the kind of pieces 
that make up the building. I mean, you have, I mean, they were even down to, you know, how the, the stylobate is the top step. And then from that springs the columns that have a specific base design, a specific right. shaft that tapers as it goes up, and then a specific capital design. And you find as you study the different classical orders that they, as time goes on, and from Eastern and Western Greece, there's, you know, different types like the Doric and the Ionic and then eventually lead to the Corinthian style. Right, right. And the Doric was the simplest and that was what the Parthenon was made out of? Yes. And it's interesting just to see like how, I mean, if you think of the post and lintel construction, you yeah. see that you see the columns, they come up and they taper as they come up to a a very kind of austere capital. It's yeah. not as ornate as, you know, the Ionic that has the, the, the volutes or scrolls at the top. A little it's more shapes. Exactly. And this, this is more or snail. Maybe. Yeah. It's there's shorter, heavier columns in the Doric order. Um, the columns are fluted, which have these fluted means these, uh, concave kind of carvings that go up the column. Yeah. Going all the way around. They could look kind of scalloped. Yeah, yeah. And then the top kind of capital is kind of very refined. It's a couple of convex curves, almost kind of moldings that kind of, you know, rotate around and then end at uh, the abacus or the square kind of top load bearing function for the lintel. Yeah, and they're kind of, um, they look like kind of a cushion on top. And the right. ionic, ionic doesn't have a doesn't really have a base the way, or I'm sorry, the Doric doesn't really have a base the way the Ionic or Corinthian does. Excuse me. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a lot more ornate. It's a lot more, um, you kind of pick out that it's more of a kind of a structural kind of cap with the Corinthian and the Ionic where the Doric is more simple. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was an older style and it's actually kind of, I've heard some people describe it as, the dork being kind of masculine, like almost a very simplified man in a toga. Right. And the Ionic being more of a, a woman with her hair curled, and then the Corinthian being a very young, nymphish young woman. Yeah, I, I could see that. So, But yeah, I think, I mean, the construction of it, how the post and lintel construction of this age is, is very easily defined if you look at how, mm -hmm. you know, you have the basically you have the plinth or the crepidoma that's the platform that the building is built off of right right and then from there you get you get the columns to the lintel which is the architrave and then the decorative frieze that sits above that that then yeah. sets up the cornice the pediments and so forth so yeah. forth and so on it, it sounds like all the parts are very functional and they've over time built out these elaborate decorative things that go on top of them. I mean, you you think of post and lintel, it'd be the first thing you try to do if you're trying to figure out how to build a shelter of some kind. So the construction type is very simple, but they've just kind of refined it over hundreds of years, basically. Yeah, and I I found it interesting too when I started doing some of the research on, you know, a lot of the carvings and things of mm -hmm. that happen in the frieze. That's just above the uh, the architrave. That's the basically the lintel on top of the columns. Yeah, you see that they start to bring out and mimic some of the items of you know 
simple timber construction. Like you have dentals that come out that almost make the same shape that you would see of a rafter being cut down. Right, right. Almost like they're they're the the shapes were hold over from the almost uh, primordial age when they were building out of wood, but the they've lost their functionalism, but it just kind of continued on as forms. Right, right. That the form had to be there, you know, didn't quite look right. You know, it it was an element that everyone kind of understood and mm-hmm. kind of kept going with this style of architecture, which is right. really kind of interesting. Yeah. But yeah, this building is, you know, it's the best example of the Doric order. Mm-hmm. And it's been studied, you know, and I can see it being one of those things that even, you know, Vitruvius come going around and looking at different examples of classical orders and classical architecture as this being like the kind of the best example of the Doric. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're talking about it as this uh, post and lentil thing. Um, and we've but it it all curves in every direction up and down and left and right. Uh, and that's one of the more kind of fascinating things about it. And people have speculated a lot of, like, why is the entablature curving up? And why does the front of the building actually lean out a little bit? Why are the columns kind of fatter in the middle? Um, and there have been all kinds of theories developed about, about that. Yeah, and it seems like most of the theories that kind of are still prevalent in architecture now, it all has to deal with an aesthetic, you know? It's not so much of... I don't know how to describe it. It's not like, like you'd ever hear it go, well, you know, the columns were thinner or it was curved because of a structural reason. It's more of, you know, this is a, a way to kind of accentuate the column to make it, you know, a convex shape a third of the way up and have it taper as it reaches the top to kind of make it seem more kind of impressive. And yeah, well, I mean, certainly the, the columns that's way, but the, um, the base that the columns are set on is curved also, which is something people, I mean, I've heard some people say it was to shed water or because it would stabilize during earthquakes, but others have said, uh, and this is an idea that is really prominent among classical architects, that the slight curves actually account for the curvature of your eye, so they look straighter. And, Hmm. And wrapped up in that is this Greek idea that the world we live in is kind of a false world compared to the world of the gods. So if you want to approach the gods world, maybe you have to build it curved so that it looks more godlike and straight. But they also, um, that means every single column, if you think about it running down the Parthenon is unique. Cause as, as you go across the curve, the angle of the column meets it at the base and the height of it is all totally different. And some, somebody said, uh, the 17 columns would, all meet at some point, like a half a mile above the Parthenon, if you continued them. Wow. So, yeah, so there's, there's crazy shifting of like one degree everywhere around that building. Yeah, which is kind of interesting to think of that juxtaposed to what we do nowadays, where it's tried, you try to make everything the same. So it's, you know, a simple process of the making of it. Where here, I mean, even you look at the building, you can tell that there was kind of no no expense spared, no... Yeah. Uh, there was so much artwork and so much care and craft put into every piece of this building. 
Yeah, it really is. I mean, going back to the point I tried to make earlier about, like, it's not a big building, but, like, every square inch of it, they tried to get perfect. And yeah. that's, that's kind of a powerful statement. Um, yeah, I mean, even if you think about how, like, the how the freeze is broken up into the the triglyphs, which are the three vertical rods, and then the metopes, which are the carved reliefs in between. I mean, right. if you think of how big that building is, yeah, yeah, how how many of those are, and the, each one of them is an individual carving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's almost like, um, in a weird way, a Gothic cathedral, but instead of just being covered with uh, images, there's this kind of push and pull between kind of pure geometry and the storytelling. Yeah, it's very organized in the yeah. way that it's laid out where Gothic tends to be a little more sprawling. Yeah, and there's um, there's a famous frieze on the building that runs around the building um, that shows the Panathlanic uh, procession, which is kind of famous because it shows the same thing at many different times. It shows the beginning of the parade and the end of the parade, or maybe it shows the parade all at once and people just getting started. But there's a, a kind of radical idea in there of, of time it's wrapped up in that little, uh, little freeze that time is something moving and that you're not just freezing time and showing a moment in time, but you're showing many moments in time. Yeah, and it's it's like kind of a nice way for cubism. a building like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice way too for this building to kind of, you know, you think about this this temple on a hill yeah. and it explains, you know, their their grand processions and their you know, their high high order, their civilized culture and the things that they do. And it's something that, you know, we can even study now of how how they must have lived. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of what we know about ancient Greece we've found on their their buildings and their their other artifacts they've left behind where they're showing important parts of everyday life. Um, another thing that's always struck me about Greek architecture is how especially with their temples, they have rules for their gods, so they're never quite square with anything. And um, unlike the, the Romans who would like sit it in a city and square it up, so everything's mm -hmm. kind of viewed kind of in a two-point perspective on angle. So it really gives the building this kind of strong sculptural appearance. You know, if you look at a building straight on, it's kind of flat like a, like a piece of paper. When yeah. you turn it, you can really see. Um, and, and then I would think all that slight curving would really be impactful. And you've and we, we talked about this in the last one. You've actually seen the one-third scale Parthenon in Nashville. Yes, I have. Which is very interesting, considering too. I think it's made out of like a, like a brown granite, so it's not even anywhere near as striking as the the Parthenon is, yeah. even in in the ruined form. You know, just the pure white that you see is amazing. Yeah, did the um, did all those subtle curves and um, uh, adjustments were those something that really struck you when you saw it, or was it? I think it's 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 very subtle. I don't think it's something that you really perceive unless you're really trying to look for it. And you even have to get to the point where you're probably studying the building and trying to break it down to really 
kind of pick up on that. that Almost sort like of... a straight edge to it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's why everybody always has the, why it's been so heavily theorized. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the whiteness, though, because I, I think that might be its, its biggest legacy for modern architecture, which is always so strongly associated with white. Because uh, it wasn't originally white, it was it was they painted it up, and it, it must have really looked very strongly pagan and weird compared to yeah uh, what we think of as 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 great architecture today. Yeah, especially with the I think some of the studies have suggested you know there's a, a lot of like really deep colors that they use to kind of paint the building. Yeah, I've seen some uh, computer renderings that put colors on, and it's you know reds and ochres and all these kind of. Oh yeah, and like deep purples and just interesting stuff. Yeah, and then they would. I think they they. I know they would um, paint up the sculptures to make them look like people too, which is crazy. Like all, our, but it's it's kind of interesting because when people go and study ancient architecture and they're trying to learn from that in the Renaissance, they didn't know they were painted, so they all were done in white and that's kind of become the standard for architecture that, or for art for for sculpture it's the it's a marble statue and the finish will be marble right right so it's kind of actually based on a misinterpretation but it's become a standard of beauty for what what we consider great uh material use of material yeah so as, as you've kind of suggested, and we'll talk about Vitruvius in a little bit, probably, I think next time it's on schedule. Um, the Parthenon actually first found its way into Western, modern Western thought through Roman works, where, uh, because the Renaissance started in Italy in the 14th century, uh, the Italians were studying this, this vast kind of, it's, been, it's kind of been compared to uh, medieval Italy, kind of like a big, shipwreck and you had all these parts all around you and you knew there was this great machine of a ship but you couldn't figure it out so the italians were studying the greeks but the or the romans but the romans actually were building on greek tradition yeah i could see that it's a, actually interesting too how i mean it kind of took to the renaissance for them to kind of figure out a little bit of the chronology a little yeah. bit of the different parts and then how everything was formed. And it wasn't even until that point that they kind of started to kind of reevaluate it and kind of tweak it, redesign it and yeah. bring it into the modern age. Well, there was a you know, few hundred years where they really just ignored these things for, for oh, some yeah. strange reason. And that's why I always, we're not going to talk a lot about medieval architecture because it's such a different worldview than what we know today where, they could just dismiss you know, giant concrete buildings, which was basically a magical construction material as far as they knew. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how civilizations way before them were able to create, you know, masterpieces like this, but then how that's all lost yeah, they're, for a they're, good chunk of time. Yeah. Um, so, and I... I the you, you we talked about the Renaissance. They start learning and studying from these and trying to regain that knowledge in the Renaissance. So it's, it's studying the architecture is also about trying to figure out how their techniques were and learn some of their technology. Um, so most Renaissance architecture or Baroque architecture leading up to the 17th or 18th century is actually heavily Roman. 
and it isn't until the 18th century that Greek uh, mode models begin to play a large role in architectural thinking. Um, and that, that it kind of uh, corresponds to a, a time where there's a rediscovery of Egypt and medieval architecture and kind of eclecticism reigns. Um, but the main reason for that was that Greece was part of Muslim Turkey. And so it wasn't open to the Western world. So the Greek influence kind of disappeared it didn't disappear. It was supplemented in all the other Roman references, but it wasn't something that was really well understood. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting way of thinking about it, how this, you know, civilization came up with all these great buildings, great sculptors, you know, some of the first architects, and then how just through, like you said before, like through politics and the way that, the lands evolved it's it was kind of held away from the people who were interested in studying it and creating the rebirth yeah so I, I think one reason why why the parthenon has such a strong place in in modern architecture's mind is because it was discovered during um the 18th century really by western powers after Greek independence supported was won from Turkey supported by European powers and what they found was this kind of very romantic white skeletal structure that was left and the, the Parthenon had been a church for a long time like for centuries much longer than it had been a pagan temple but it had its roof blown off when the when Venice attempted to take it back uh, for the Christians um and for trade, the Turks had stored a bunch of uh, of explosives in there, and when a Venetian shell hit it, it blew the roof off of it. And I'm, I'm chuckling a little bit, but they also used it as a bomb shelter, which seems pretty unwise. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could see how they, they would think the cellar, the rooms inside would be, you know, probably good for that, but I don't think the structure itself necessarily screams, you know, bunker. Yeah, masonry structures tend to not really hold up well against sudden impacts, and they have to yeah. fail catastrophically. Yeah, and I think what's interesting, too, about the Parthenon is you don't, I think when you see, like if you go and you see the example in Nashville, where yeah. you can see it as kind of in its monolithic form, where when you go see the Parthenon now, the actual Parthenon, you can see how the there's an erosion between the joints. Yeah. So you can see the different, you can see the layers of the columns. They aren't single pieces and you can see that the lintels, you could see the different individual right. parts of the frieze and the triglyphs and things. So you can see it kind of more as a kit of parts now where yeah. originally, I, I imagine when they were thinking, Oh, this would be good as a bunker. I mean, it probably looked at that time as more of a monolithic, you know, sculpture. Yeah, and before guns, masonry walls were really strong, strong right. structures. Um, that's interesting, the kit of parts you said, too. That, that That's a very kind of modern idea, and you, you touched on it earlier when you talked about how we in modern architecture wouldn't do all this subtle curving because there's this um, I, aesthetic idea of making things, too, and using mass production, so everything right. kind of mechanically fits together. And looking at it as a kit of parts thing would be something 
that I think you're absolutely right. And right down to the description of all the different pieces that go into the building, all the little stylistic things, it's, it's a kit of parts that you can kind of put together and then play with. And so every, every ancient temple to Athena would have the same parts, um, but they might play with the spacing a little bit or with the, the curvature or something like that, or they might do something slightly different on the inside. Yeah, or as the technology evolved, you know, the, the spans between columns would get longer and, you yeah. know, different different elements that they had, you know, like the the dentals would change uh, size and shape and you would have, you know, different um, reliefs, different, you know, carvings, all kinds of things as it evolved. Yeah, cause I've been to Paestum in Italy, which was uh, a Greek... Uh, colony. I mean, the Greek. This that we it started in the Aegea, but it kind of spread across into central, um, central Mediterranean, where it, it Im- impacted the Romans, who were basically living in mud huts while the uh, Greeks were building the Parthenon. Um, and it, it's the the curvature of its columns is greatly exaggerated, almost like if they were people, they have exceptionally tiny little heads. It's very. It's not it's not as pleasing as the Parthenon to look at, uh, but I think those those white ruins surrounded by grass and the blue sky that something that romantic poets saw and a lot of them were very interested in the Greek independence movement and they kind of fell in love with you know and, and the romantics were kind of famous for building ruins out on their estates. They weren't really ruins. Like there's one picture we always see of a, a giant column which would have been in a Parthenon the size of a football stadium, but that head was really fake and on the inside it was a home and these kind of crazy ideas. But I do think that idea yeah. of the, the Parthenon as a ruin still influences things like, like loft design and warehouses or um, urban exploration. And that idea of kind of the refined man-made thing coming together with something unrefined, even if they're both man-made, uh, still right. influences architecture today. Yeah, and I mean, I can even see just, you know, what you said about, you know, seeing the white form of the Parthenon up on a hill, you know, inspired a lot of uh, modern architecture too, or if you think of like, Corbusier liked to do a lot of white buildings yeah, on columns. a blank field too, yeah, where he wanted yeah. it to be, you know, the only thing that there was no relation to what was adjacent to it. It was, you know, an object on a hill essentially, which came straight from this example. Yeah. Which is exactly, I mean, it's the Parthenon. That's it. yeah. It's hard not to look at once you've really thought about it, like the Villa Savoy and say, and see just like heavy, heavy Parthenon influence in it. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing, one of the other things that was really influential about the Parthenon, like there's that romanticism and there's the ruin, but um, there's a very strict Greek idea of proportions. And the Greeks recognize somehow that uh, sound and distance are completely related. So if you double the length of a string, it's uh, frequency when pluck drops by an octave. So they've, and if you play different lengths of string together as long as they're in whole ratios you get these great harmonics 
and they said, ah, there's something here. There's some secret of the universe. We can connect sound and sight. And so these proportioning systems, which end up being very close to the Fibonacci sequence and in other mathematical systems, just kind of has an infected architecture up through the 20th century where these proportionate systems uh, based off the golden section. And I think Parthenon's close to a golden section. I'm not sure, though. Yeah, it, I tried to do some research to see if it, there was like a direct connection. Yeah. And it almost kind of led me to believe that, you know, they kind of developed the golden section looking at temples like this. Where yeah. they could, I mean, a lot of the history and stuff that you study, you read about like the classical orders and like the Doric, for example, um, the columns had a specific relationship where they, the height of the columns was seven times the diameter of the column at right. the, at its base. And then you talk about like how I had another note in here about something about like the height of the column was one third of the width of the stylobate. So the, the platform that the building sat on, the column was one third of that height and yeah. everything had these relationships to each other that I think was, I mean, as a, you know, a ruin as it is now is something you can go back and, and kind of study and, you know, map out all these things, which helped influence, you know, a lot of architecture after this, especially the Renaissance, which then started to take some of these proportions and kind of play with them. Yeah. And, and see, it kind of almost challenged them a little bit. Yeah. And for, um, again, like that, that kid apart's idea comes back and although they wouldn't have thought it that way, you could almost just, um, say that it, it's you know um what the the what kind of call what kind of uh temple you wanted and that would determine all the relationships and dimensions so you just have to pick one dimension to be a solid dimension and then everything is a fraction of that in some way as you were yeah saying. they all build off of each other to make it proportional yeah um so like the parthenon could be described as a peripteral which means the columns run all the way around it Octa style, which eight columns across the front and 17 along the side, Ionic temple. So once you know that, all you need is somebody to go out and say, this is how wide the column base is, and then you can figure out all the other dimensions, in theory. Yeah. So there's like a system behind it, which again, a lot of modern architects, especially like the Bauhaus, which is all about industrial design, were really interested in. Yeah, it's interesting to think of how that, mm -hmm. that system, you just you figure out one thing, you figure out like the, the style that you're going to do it in. And then you just, you just crank it out. Right. Right. There's sort of, uh, well, there, there's a kind of a typology idea there of studying different types. Oh, and you said the golden section earlier, which I guess we should probably explain to people what that is. Yeah. So the golden section is like essentially the perfect proportional rectangle. Yeah. Supposedly. Yeah. And there's there's all kinds of uh, you know drawings proving it with you know the per I think it, the golden section was it's a the a side times two equals the length of the rectangle. Yeah, well, it's um, you can draw it if you take a a square and you draw a line on the diagonal, and then use that diagonal line to draw an arch to extend the circle and where that arch crosses the base of the square you get this rectangle is that right 
And then, mm-hmm. uh, then it, people can have seen this in like um, snail shells, and it's closely marked if you do the Fibonacci sequence as geometry of squares expanding, which Fibonacci wanted to figure out how many goats he would have if he started with two goats. So two goats make three goats, three goats make five goats, you know, breeding-wise. So it ends up being this kind of mathematical sequence that underlines all kinds of natural philosophy or uh, phenomena. Yeah, it's an interesting interesting way of yeah and it's funny too because it i when i even did some research on the golden section it's it comes up as so many different alternate names too where it's yeah the golden ratio the golden rectangle and then it it shows you the drawings and then the, the calculations and everything to kind of create what is the golden section yeah i guess there's this real mysticism with that and which goes back to Greek architecture, which carries through into some guys that you would think would be really hardcore functionalist people. You know, Corbusier loved these proportional systems, but he also referred to it as a house as a machine for living. So there's this spiritualism which underlies a lot of this kind of uh, supposedly rational stuff. Yeah, that's an interesting way to kind of look at that that's what we try to do uh, <laughs> <laughs> so i think it's when when we think of the parthenon why it still matters um for me what comes away from it is the 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 relationship of the mathematical rigor and proportioning system underneath it which has influenced so many architects and then the romanticism of the actual ruins and then just the um, general ideas of Greek life and Greek philosophy and the individual and studying the natural world and progress, which kind of underpins our society in general. Yeah, I, I think that's a good description. I also think it's, you know, in practicing architecture, um, a lot of the terms that were developed through the study of the, the Parthenon you know, whether it be um, the capital of a column or, you know, the post and lintel construction and tablature and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we were working on a problem in the office the other day about how these pilasters we were working on were going to kind of meet the entablature and how they have, even back to this example, there's a proportional relationship of how those items connect, how that construction is built that, you know, when we're working through a design problem like that, you kind of know like how, how to put it together to where it, it works and it's been understood since the Parthenon. Right. Right. And whether that's constructed through, uh, just society or what you kind of go back to those and they kind of work where you have, whether it's, it's a decorative pilaster being attached to a wall or it's a structural one you can kind of look at the greek ideas of how to join stuff so it doesn't look silly and it'll right it'll go together for you really well um well it's been about an hour so i think it's a good time to wrap it up do you have any other thoughts about the parthenon or going to nashville (laughs) (laughs) no i mean i i saw the one in nashville briefly i didn't actually 
I think it was actually before I went to school for architecture. So I remember seeing it and it, it just seemed weird. Like what, what is this doing in this city? This just doesn't make any sense. Oh, so and it doesn't me. have, I mean, it's in the middle of a park, but I mean the, like, if you think of going and seeing the Parthenon in Greece, you see the, how it's a temple on a hill. It's set against the clouds. It's a stark white building. Yeah. And it's there. there is a romanticism to it where the one in Nashville is kind of, it's almost set into the side of a hill. It's, uh, you know, there's a grass field out in front of it. It has a backdrop of uh, lots of trees, pine trees and things. Mm-hmm. So it's not set against the same background and it doesn't have anywhere near the same reading. It's not stark white. You don't see it kind of almost glowing on top of a hill. It's more right. of a, you know, a, a recreation that's kind of just set in a park as, you know, just kind of a, an yeah. example of the, it's almost an example of like classical architecture. It didn't even necessarily have to be the Parthenon. It just happens to be, you know, a, a third scale or two third scale right. version of it. So, yeah, but if you're just going to pick a classical building, it would be the Parthenon. So there, there was something in the, surrealness of it that hit you even if you didn't know what much about the parthon it just stuck struck it stuck in your mind is very odd yeah yeah that's that's really cool and i think the other point you just made was context matters so much like some people every once in a while you'll hear somebody developer want to buy us a, a, a lot like this happened with the bucket library in atlanta and he's like well we'll just move the library and like you can't do that the building is built for the site you right it just isn't the same building so right well cool dave well thanks i'll let you uh get back to your evening and you can spend your 30 minutes with your wife without your children up yeah and then go to work tomorrow <laughs> like 30 minutes before i go to bed yeah yeah well 9 30 it's getting late man yeah <laughs> all right thanks have a good night yeah you too bye man bye